Welcome to Lumpin Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin Radio each week. This week, we chatted about Illinois' groundbreaking crime bill, spoke with a celebrated local author, and learned about how pandemic affects the world economy. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin Week in Review for February 19, 2021. Mario Smith spoke to Rep. Justin Slaughter about the mammoth new crime bill recently enacted by Springfield. Slaughter talked about the school-to-prison pipeline, how mass incarceration has impoverished whole generations, and how the new law will force reluctant stakeholders to the table. And yes, Mario did ask if his nickname was Sergeant. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2. Can you talk or speak to the importance of this bill and how close are we for to it being actualized? Oh, most definitely. And um, you're right. I mean, a lot of the... The challenges, a lot of the issues uh, that we are addressing in the bill are not contemporary new issues. These, these issues have been around for quite some time. Um, you know, in particular, the Black Caucus has, has spent a great deal of time, energy, and effort in, um, you know, addressing criminal justice reform. Uh, the, the, the bill actually reflects several different bills that members had introduced or, or pushed over the years. And what we did was we, we came together and, and really put all of those into one uh, big omnibus bill. Now, uh, Mario, to your point in regards to this summer, um, what not just you know Chicago and Cook County and the state of Illinois was experiencing, but the entire country and even actually even globally, um, looking at what the, the fallout from the George uh, Floyd situation, one of the things that we really wanted to do was take this to the next level. One of the things you've been hearing me say is, let's go from protest to progress. And what exactly does that mean? Well, it's okay for us to march together. It's okay for us to protest together. It's also okay for us to make policy together. Um, the black community in particular, but also just um, underserved communities and, and uh, um, communities of, of, of uh, uh, you know, minorities have never really, really, we're still fighting to have a seat at the table when it comes to the policy discussion. So we wanted to um, take this thing into the next realm and, and, and move from always asking and requesting and begging to more of of a, of a space where we're demanding. Um, and, and, and so what are those policy uh, uh, things that we took a look at? Um, in regards to policing, there were really seven main areas that we wanted to take a look at, Mario. One was crisis intervention and conflict de-escalation. We are gonna be launching a, um, a, a statewide co-responder program uh, many folks know that you know police are not always responding to situations that are dangerous or violent, but may need some order sort of expertise, something more in the realm of human services or social service approach. So we looked at crisis intervention and conflict de-escalation. Um, we also looked at limiting use of force. Right, uh, the bill establishes a statewide uh, um, universalized standard for the use of force and identifies and defines you know, what's excessive and, 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 and what's prohibited. We looked at transparency. You already talked about it. We're gonna be creating a, a 
a statewide mandate for body cameras for our officers, right? Um, and then also looking at, you know, requirements for uh, reporting and collecting and the retention of police data that we know is really important when we look at uh, disciplinary, uh, the aspect of disciplinary uh, stuff with, with police. Then also oversight enforcement. Our brother, uh, Attorney General Raul, and Mario, maybe that's why you saw me in Hyde Park. I used sure to. Of it. I'm sure of it. I was, I was, well, then Senator Raul's uh, district director, but um, him and his office was very instrumental in building out the licensing uh, mm -hmm. component to the bill, strengthening our certification uh, of, of police officers, you know, better background checks, you know, documenting, you know, our officers actually getting, you know, this training, but then expanding uh, decertification, right? Uh, expanding the list of misdemeanors, for example, that, that qualify for automatic uh, decertification, and then kind of building out this discretionary uh, disciplinary uh, uh, process for, for police officers. Um, let, me, let me ask you something. Is there any kind of talk within this bill? Um, there was a, a, a situation here in Chicago, as you well know, and I cannot recall her name, and I, I, I hate that I can't remember her name. The police were answering a call of a, a young man who was disturbed. They ended up killing him and his neighbor. No one came there that was able to deal with this young man's um, emotional issue. It's hard to send a policeman in to do a, the job of a psychiatrist. That's right. What, what talk is there in that bill about creating a division within the police department, if there isn't one already, or within police departments in the state of Illinois, where if there's a problem like that, that officer that comes is trained to deal with a person that is having an emotional breakdown uh, within that moment. That's Any right. talk of that in that bill? So, so two, two uh, big initiatives that are just at the co-responder model that, that I, that I spoke of um, where you would have an accompanying, um, you know, mental health professional um, that's also there um, to, to kind of understand the nuances of, of, of what is happening, the nature of, of, of the incident and, and, and whatnot. Um, a lot of cities, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, of course, Minneapolis kind of be in the face of the co-responder model. But we really want to make this a best practice state in regards to that. Secondly, Mario, you had hit on it. We're enhancing our crisis intervention training uh, in the bill. Uh, we'll hear the governor in his budget address tomorrow talk about the resources that the state budget will be shifting over there for this training. But um, best practice training for crisis intervention and also use of force training. And so making sure that our officers are trained um, in, in, in that realm. But as we know, we've got to just change the culture in general, right? You know, if your heart and your mind and your spirit isn't there in regards to how you're addressing these, these issues, which unfortunately, you know, happen in, in, in minority communities more often, um, you know, that's always gonna, you know, can you train away a racist heart? You know, I don't know, but, um, you know, so we're also looking at, at, at a culture shift by uh, ushering in these new initiatives as well. And let me ask real quick before I turn it over to Mikayla, because now now you got me, you got my mind spinning. And told I told you we should. I told you we needed this brother on the show. I, I, yes, yeah? you, 
Yes, you did. I but definitely I want to make sure. Needed more time, I'm going to come back. You know. <laughs> no, don't worry. You you will be back. I promise you that. My my my, not my last question, but my my question before I turn it over to Michaela. How soon, based on this bill, how soon do cities within Illinois have before they have to adhere to the things that are in this bill? Is it immediate? Is it in a year? Like the January first, twenty twenty two. Very, very good question. The, the bill itself um, has a July 1, 2021 start date. However, there are uh, a myriad of different start dates within the bill based on whatever particular uh, initiative we're talking about. One huge thing, for example, Mario, that we did was uh, we're ending the practice of, of, of cash bail. Okay, Um, so we codified what was called the Pretrial Fairness Act. We put that whole act. That was a separate bill. We took that bill and put it, put it, put it, it, put it in this omnibus bill. That's a big endeavor. Um, A lot of folks at the table for that, Um, you know, at the county level, of course, our judiciary and others. We put in, for instance, that doesn't start until January 1st of 2023 just to give you an example, okay? Another one, body cams. Um, That's a rolling compliance schedule. It's gonna start in January 1st of 2022 Mm -hmm. and end at the end of uh, 2025. So within that time, municipalities will be onboarding themselves with the the requirement um, to, to have the body cams. Um, so to answer your question, there's some moving uh, go live dates within all of this. Even the training that that you had just were referencing, that's going to be something that that we build up to. It's not just going to you know you press a button and then all the officers in the state get trained, right? You know we're right. we, we're going to have to roll that out, right? That takes um, time. I understand that, right? And it and it, and it and it and it does take time, but nevertheless, you have these different sort of um, these different go live dates uh, that that uh, that we're looking at all throughout the bill. Uh, it all really kind of depends on when the um, what initiative you're actually talking about. <laughs> Representative Slaughter, thank you so much for being here. Um, uh, and and I gotta I gotta give you giant kudos for getting this thing passed. This is a this was a coup, quite frankly. This is tremendous. Um, there were so, I know you've been working on this. There's been quiet conversations. There's been louder conversations. There's been stops and starts, but this sure. has been coming together you for know. years, right? You know. um, and somehow you were able to put it all in the bag and run across the finish line before um, it could get too loud too, which I, I mean, I, I liked watching all of the moves um, <laughs> that made it happen. Um, but so to, to to piggyback on what Mario said about um, dates where this this goes live, what about teeth? What if what if some of these small towns or what if what if people don't want to participate in this? What if they don't want to get rid of cash bail? Is there teeth in there? Can we do we? Is there penalties? How do we how do we make sure that there's compliance? Sure, sure. Um, it's 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 a very very critical question that you're asking, Michaela. I think that um, you know a lot of this was about 
um, again, uh, us saying, look, you know, we're kind of done with the sort of approach that we've always used. You know, the, the, this has been historical challenges that we're looking at. We really need to do something different. And so the, the, by passing the bill, in a lot of respects, we're putting down a marker where we're saying these are the areas that we need to look at because there's a lot of sentencing reform uh, stuff in the bill. Chuck Mertz talked with Lynn Paramore about the effect of pandemics on the world economy. This pandemic is not the first, nor the last. Paramore discusses how pandemic spending has changed entire governments, why it is so difficult for people to embrace disaster spending, and what long-term effects COVID may have on the world. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Did the pandemic, did it, did it create a global mental health crisis? Did it exacerbate an already existing global health crisis? crisis, mental health crisis, or did it reveal a mental health crisis that already existed and was already a major challenge? I think it, it did uh, the, the latter two things that you mentioned. I think it amplified a crisis that already existed and, you know, sort of pulled back the curtain on some problems that had been brewing for quite some time. Um, if we, a lot of this goes back really to the Great Recession and, uh, you know, great swaths of the United States and and uh, other countries never really recovered. Uh, something it became very apparent to social researchers that something was very wrong when life expectancies uh, started to dip. in uh, In the United States, we started to see life expectancies going down. 
2015, and then it happened again in 2016, and yet again in 2017. And to put this in historical perspective, it hadn't been since the Spanish flu that we'd seen in America such a long decline of life expectancy uh, going down. So that began to really tip people off. Something is amiss. That's not supposed to happen in wealthy countries. We're supposed to live longer. We're supposed to have access to cutting edge medicine. Uh, so uh, there, the two Princeton economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, really begin, began to home in on what was happening. And they coined the term deaths of despair in a 2015 study that they did to talk about uh, people dying from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related ailments at record rates. And these are obviously all connected to mental health issues. Um, people were reporting feeling sicker, more stressed out, more prone to chronic pain, uh, just unable to cope with life and work. And uh, it was white men and women in midlife that were uh, seeing the highest rates of these deaths of despair. Uh, and it was in, an interesting phenomenon because their incomes were somewhat higher than let's say Hispanics and Africans and African-Americans without college degrees, but they were feeling a sense of chronic loss, um, a sense that no matter what they did, they couldn't get ahead. And uh, we can sort of see the problems that began to brew with this particular group uh, feeling such stress, it's very likely connected to the fact that uh, a, a large number of them became Trump voters and, and expressing their distress and outrage that way. Um, and we're seeing, um, we, we've seen that the opioid crisis, uh, you know, helped drive some of these deaths of despair. And now we're seeing uh, yet another wave of despair created amplified and, uh, you know, again, as you said, uh, re revealing the, the fissures in our society um, through the pandemic. And it looks like you, you had mentioned COVID long haulers a little while ago in your program. And there's a sense in which we're all going to be COVID long haulers in the economic and social sense, unless we happen to be very rich. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, evidence that the aftermath of the pandemic is going to be with us for decades to come. Do you think that we were in active denial of the ongoing mental health crisis that was happening before the pandemic? And and can that kind of denialism, can that continue, uh, I hate to use this phrase, after the pandemic? Yes, I do think there has been quite a bit of denial about the, the mental health crisis. And it's reflected in the state of our healthcare system in general. I mean, one of the first things that you need to address mental health is uh, appropriate healthcare. And in the United States, no matter how many times Americans say in poll after poll, survey after survey, that they don't like our current system of healthcare and they want something along the lines of a universal healthcare program, um, a, a single payer program, Politicians ignore that cry and that plea, even politicians like Joe Biden. 
uh, have ignored that cry and, and pretend that this is something, uh, some kind of a radical notion or it's impossible, which is of course absurd. Uh, we are an outlier uh, among wealthy industrialized nations in, in, in not having a universal healthcare program. So we, we are definitely, I mean, that's just one aspect of how we're in denial. And of course that is playing out in the pandemic too. You know, we have an inadequate healthcare program. We have inadequate social safety nets. You know, we're, we're, we're again, we're, we stand out among nations uh, that have resources uh, on earth. We're, we're really, <laughs> American exceptionalism takes a very dark connotation in this sense. And I do think that we're seeing people break down under the stress of a crisis like this. They had very little to sort of tide them over or hold them up in the event of one missed paycheck, you know, much less month after month after month of closed businesses, um, re reduced income, lost jobs, et cetera. We're, we, our system is not set up to handle a crisis at all. You, well, what does that say about our system then? What does it say about a system that cannot handle crisis? Isn't that, isn't that supposed to be the ultimate test of any system if it can work during crisis? Well, you put it very plainly, and I, I think that's the reality that that we've been sticking our heads under the sand like a bunch of ostriches not facing. Yes, I think that is a reality. Our current capitalist system with its concentration of wealth and uh, money-driven politics is not equipped to handle a crisis. You know, I, I like to quote Justice Brandeis, who said, you can have a democracy or you can have the concentration of wealth, but you cannot have both. And we're, I think we really have to reckon with this fundamental problem that our system is geared towards enriching those at the very top and catering to their needs and the rest of the people can just go to hell. And we're seeing this play out right now. I mean, to imagine the anger that people feel uh, watching the stock market soar when they've just lost a job and, or, you know, and, and they don't even know if they're going to get a paltry stimulus check from the government. This is the kind of anger, in my opinion, that drives a lot of the distrust and the divide and the spinning off into uh, unhealthy conspiracy theories and so on. It, it's the thing that it's, it's the sort of thing that happens when people start to break down and they don't know where to turn and they don't feel that their representatives are listening to them. Uh, who do they trust? Who do they turn to? Uh, sometimes they end up turning towards authoritarian figures, uh, people who do not have their best interest at heart but can exploit their pain, someone like Donald Trump. And frankly, I worry that if the current administration can't take on a transformative role in addressing these inequities and really taking on the tax structure, um, I just spoke to sociologist Shannon Manat, who is studying the pandemic and its effects, and she agrees that um, this is what the Biden administration has to do, and anything short of that, it puts us in a very dangerous situation. You know, people may think that Donald Trump was bad. Uh, history shows us that's not actually as bad as it gets. There are people even more dangerous who can come along when a population is is stressed and strained to the breaking point, 
And so if we don't get something done for ordinary people in the next four years, we're going to be in a very dangerous place. Welcome to the show. I'm standing outside the co-prosperity sphere here on Morgan waiting for Kyle. And this episode will be... What's up? Oh, come here. Okay, oh, yeah. park the truck. Don't park. There's a railroad tie in the back. Pull it out and slide it in front of the back tires. It'll come to a full stop. Uh, okay. <coughs> ah, serious carbon monoxide stuff going on yep. with this truck. <laughs> That's not good. I know I, I know I kept falling asleep in front of red lights. Whose pickup truck is this, anyway? That's a friend of mine's. I mean, what, do you, what were you doing with it? I've been delivering filing cabinets all over the city. Why filing cabinets? Because it's the safest way for people to keep the facts safe from alternative fact people. Oh, you mean like documents, birth certificates, passports, stuff facts like that? Facts of life. Conversations, photographs, doodles, recipes, mm. all things. See, filing cabinets mm. can't crash or be hacked or manipulated by anything that isn't a crowbar or the key that opens it. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't a hard drive do the job? Hard drive? Are you nuts? Uh, do you have any ideas how easy it is for someone with advanced computer knowledge to get inside of one of those things? <laughs> hey, Janice Joplin, I bet all the recipes that Mars Brewing has are on some dumb computer somewhere. Is yeah. it any surprise at all that we live in an age yeah. of an Just... orange man... And the Patriots cheating <sighs> their way into another Super Bowl. The whole society is becoming undertow. Yeah, I know. It does feel that way. I just... At least the Women's March was a positive example where the nation can go, you know? It was more than positive. It saved my life. How do you mean? Uh, the carbon monoxide leak in the truck nearly killed me a bunch of times. I was constantly being resuscitated. So you were in the march? I was delightfully trapped in it, actually. I was doing my part in handing out filing cabinets. That's awesome, Kyle. I mean, not very cool for the environment, but your best effort is good enough, as always. You know, I, I don't want to ruin the show or nothing, but I gotta ask, why do you sound so depressed today? Well, an overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, you know what? There's, there's no time to wallow. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can show up and get involved. You can make America not like Undertown. Right. Now repeat after me. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America... Okay. We should write a song. Yeah, okay. What's the best nation? Donation. As it was famously said, 
Now, I do a lot of things for people, and I don't just write songs for all you jokers out there. Back to Radio Free Bridgeport with the homeboys. This week on The Biden Files, Trump is acquitted again, Congress will form a 9-11-style commission to investigate the Capitol insurrection, the Oath Keepers tried to bring heavy weapons into the Capitol, more lawsuits are filed against Trump, and Biden tries to move beyond the mayhem. These are The Biden Files. Day 24, February 12th. Trump's lawyers in a largely fictitious defense claimed that Trump was horrified by the violence at the Capitol, hadn't known that Vice President Mike Pence was in danger, and took immediate steps to counter the rioting. However, new details from a call between Trump and then House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy show a president who was unwilling to call off the MAGA mob during the insurrection. Trump and McCarthy engaged in an expletively shouting match during that riot, with the California Republican begging the president to rein in his supporters. Trump initially claimed to McCarthy that it was Antifa that had breached the Capitol. When McCarthy pointed out this was demonstrably untrue, Trump replied, quote, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. The bombshell news stunned the Senate and revealed that McCarthy had effectively concealed evidence. A junior Republican House member, Jamie Herrera Butler, made that story public in a news release noting that she had asked for media coverage of it previously, but had been ignored. Trump's lawyers spent only two hours and 32 minutes of the 16 allotted to present their defense, echoing a number of Fox News talking points. The team showed a selectively edited video of Democrats using the word fight or fighting in political speeches four times in a row, claimed Trump was a victim somehow of cancel culture. Lawyer Bruce Castor claimed, quote, let us be clear, this trial is about far more than Trump. It is about silence and banning the speech the majority does not agree with. It is about canceling 75 million Trump voters and criminalizing political viewpoints. Trump's lawyer, Michael Vanderveen, drew laughter when he claimed on the Senate floor that he would call for 100 witnesses if Congress agreed to call them, saying, quote, Nancy Pelosi's deposition needs to be taken, Vice President Harris's deposition absolutely needs to be taken, and not by Zoom. None of these depositions should be done by Zoom. We didn't do this hearing by Zoom. These depositions should be done in person in my office in Philadelphia. Senators from both parties loudly mocked him. He replied, quote, I don't know why you're laughing. One of Trump's impeachment lawyers quit his legal team before the hearing on Thursday. David Schoen reportedly quit over how the defense planned to use video clips during the hearing. Trump then called Schoen and cajoled him back into rejoining later on in the evening. Trump lawyer Castor closed the argument on Friday by confusing Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger with Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. A member of the right-wing paramilitary group, the Oath Keepers, in the days leading up to the January 6th Capitol riot, proposed a plan to transport heavy weapons in a boat across the Potomac River. Thomas Edward Caldwell, who along with fellow Oath Keeper members Jessica Marie Watkins and Donovan Kroll, are facing conspiracy charges in connection with alleged plans to lead a coup ahead of the deadly pro-Trump mob attack. Caldwell reached out to a member of the Three Percenters, who are an extremist gun rights militia, saying, quote, with someone standing by at a dock ramp, one near the Pentagon for sure, we can have our quick response team with the heavy weapons standing by, quickly load them and ferry them across the river to our waiting arms. 
Watkins told other militia members she was awaiting cues from Trump before taking action against what the former president had been calling a stolen election. Quote, the POTUS has the right to activate units too. If Trump asks me to come, I will. Trump's doctors knowingly misled the public about his COVID-19 infection. It turns out he was far sicker than was publicly acknowledged at the time. Trump suffered extremely depressed blood oxygen levels at one point and had a lung problem associated with pneumonia caused by COVID. His doctors thought he would have to be placed on a ventilator, which at the time was an effective death sentence. Trump's oxygen level was in the low 80s. Acute COVID is diagnosed when your oxygen level drops to 90. Day 25, February 13th. Three Republican senators in an unusual move met with Trump's defense team prior to making their rebuttals. Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, and Mike Lee met with Trump lawyer David Schoen in the middle of the impeachment trial before they will vote whether or not to convict Trump and bar him from holding public office again. House impeachment managers unexpectedly called for witnesses after House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said that Trump had supported the mob in a phone call. House impeachment managers seized on that account, saying they wanted to subpoena witnesses. The Senate then voted to call witnesses. That decision was reversed a few hours later after the two sides struck a deal to allow that statement to be read into the record. The Biden administration is to face in a new asylum process in February for tens of thousands of people seeking asylum at the southern border who were forced to wait in Mexico. The DHS plans to process about 300 people per day from an estimated 25,000 people with active cases in the now halted, quote, remain in Mexico program. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said, quote, This didn't seem like an armed insurrection to me. I mean, armed, when you hear armed, don't you think of firearms? How many firearms were confiscated on January 6th? In fact, bombs, stun guns, and actual guns were seized by police on the 6th. 14 people are facing weapons charges from the insurrection, including a Maryland man. The police say stormed the Capitol with multiple magazines and a bulletproof vest. Day 26, February 14th. The Senate quitted Trump in his second impeachment trial as the 57 to 43 tally fell 10 votes short of the two-thirds majority needed to convict and allow Congress to disqualify him from holding future office. The result, however, was the most bipartisan support for an impeachment conviction in history. Seven Republicans voted to find Trump guilty. Those Republicans were Richard Burr, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sasse, and Patrick Toomey. They joined all 50 Democrats in voting to find Trump guilty of incitement by insurrection, and that is the largest number of senators to vote to find a president of their own party guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors in history. Trump is now the only president to have been impeached twice. Following the verdict, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he believed Trump was undeniably guilty in a scathing speech, but he had voted to acquit him in what critics said was a transparent attempt to have it both ways. Trump still faces criminal liability and possible prosecution. That Senate trial occurred after Trump left office because McConnell would not call back the Senate before lawmakers were set to return on January 19th unless every senator agreed to do so. Nancy Pelosi responded to McConnell by calling it pathetic blaming him for keeping the Senate shut down and unable to receive the article of impeachment. Pelosi added that the 43 Republicans who voted to acquit Trump are, quote, a cowardly group who apparently have no options because they were afraid to defend their job. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and his administration reportedly covered up the scope of the coronavirus death toll in that state's nursing homes out of fear it could be used against them by the Trump administration. The news added to pressure on the New York State governor, who has been accused of holding a similar approach as Trump. 
and Biden's deputy White House press secretary has resigned after he was suspended for a week without pay after allegedly verbally harassing and threatening a female reporter. T.J. Ducklow was initially put on leave following a Vanity Fair story reporting he had made derogatory and misogynistic comments to a reporter from Politico, telling her, quote, I will destroy you. Politico was planning to publish an article about Ducklow's romantic relationship with a reporter at neighboring news service Axios. Day 27, February 15th. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Congress will establish an independent September 11th-style commission to look into the deadly riot that took place at the Capitol in January. That announcement came days after Trump was acquitted by Republicans in the Senate of insurrection. Pelosi said the commission will investigate the domestic terrorist attack on the United States Capitol complex and relating to the interference with the peaceful transfer of power. That commission was supported by several Republican members as well. Trump celebrated the Senate voting to acquit him, calling the proceedings, quote, yet another phase of the greatest witch hunt perpetuated against him by one political party. Trump added our, quote, historic, patriotic, and beautiful movement to make America great again has only just begun. Lindsey Graham said Trump remains that party's most potent force even after his second impeachment and that the Trump movement is alive and well. Trump also criticized Mitch McConnell in a lengthy statement following the minority leader's condemnation of his actions leading up to the riot, saying, quote, Mitch is a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack, and if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. Trump also told aides he believes going to war with McConnell will win him positive TV coverage. The self-styled free speech social network parlor is back online following a month off. The social media site popular with supporters of Trump was kicked off the internet in the wake of the attack on the Capitol after Amazon decided to stop hosting their cloud servers. The site now appears to be hosted by LA-based SkySilk. Parler, which was founded by far-right megadonor Rebecca Mercer, also fired that company's CEO. It is currently run by Mark Meckler, who co-founded the Tea Party Patriots. Day 28, February 16th. Democrats are now finalizing the details on a $1.9 trillion economic relief package and look to have final legislation passed by the end of next week. Right now, that legislation would provide billions of dollars for schools and small businesses, extend unemployment benefits through the fall, deliver another round of $1,400 direct payments to individuals, and Democrats also hope to include a raise in the minimum wage to $15. However, it is unclear if they can pass that raise using the process known as reconciliation. The NAACP and the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee filed a federal lawsuit accusing Trump, his attorney Rudy Giuliani, and two extremist groups with illegally conspiring to intimidate and block Congress's certification of the 2020 election. Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who was joined by the NAACP, alleges that Trump and Giuliani's false claims that the election was stolen fomented a raid that violated the Ku Klux Klan Act. That is an 1871 law enacted after the Civil War. That law has rarely been used or tested in court. Afghanistan is asking that American and allied troops stay in that country for two more years at a NATO summit as the Taliban is said to be encircling cities in the embattled state. The U.S. had agreed in a peace deal with the Taliban for the withdrawal of forces on May 1st. The Trump administration signed that deal. It was widely criticized at the time. President Biden is expected to announce a delay in the removal of troops. New York prosecutors are now investigating more than $280 million in loans that Trump took out for four Manhattan buildings. In a court filing, the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance said he is pursuing an investigation in now into possible insurance and bank fraud by the Trump Organization and its officers. 
My pillow magnate Mike Lindell has been sued for defamation by Dominion Voting Systems over his wild claims about non-existent election fraud. Lindell bought and aired a bizarre two-hour telemercial on one American news network called Absolute Proof. The film was made, according to Lindell, over a five-day period, quote, hold up with people guarding me. Lindell claimed the documentary proved 100% the theft by China and these different international locations, this cyber attack on our nation right here that took, that flipped votes. It was a communist coup. Lindell also claimed that so many people turned out to vote for Trump that the algorithms of these machines broke. The telemercial was preceded by a lengthy disclaimer from OANN, which read in part, quote, OANN does not adopt or endorse any statements or opinions in this program regarding the following entities or people, U.S. Dominion, Smartmatic, Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, or Gabriel Sterling. And White House strategist Steve Bannon thought Trump was suffering from early-stage dementia and apparently campaigned covertly to remove him from office via the 25th Amendment. The concern started when Republicans visiting the White House in 2017 saw Trump give a speech and suspected Trump might have Alzheimer's, but gave him a standing ovation anyway. Bannon began to talk quietly about the 25th Amendment reportedly because he, quote, crazily thought that he would be elevated to president. Day 29, February 17th. The Pentagon apparently held two female nominees for top jobs because they feared the Trump White House would replace them with their own candidates before they left office. The leaders felt that any candidates other than the white men for jobs, mostly held by white men, would be vetoed by Trump. He had feuded with the Pentagon and has a history of disparaging women. The Fire Defense Secretary Mark Esper said, quote, I didn't want their promotions derailed because someone in the Trump White House saw that I recommended them or thought the Department of Defense was playing politics. The Biden administration has rejected a last-minute agreement reached by Trump loyalists that would have limited its ability to enact sweeping policy changes at ICE. The agreement would have handed policy controls to the pro-Trump union representing immigration and customs enforcement, prompting a whistleblower to accuse the departing Homeland Security official Ken Cuccinelli of, quote, gross mismanagement, gross waste of government funds, and abuse of authority. Cuccinelli signed the agreement, which included a clause requiring Homeland Security leaders to obtain, quote, prior affirmative consent in writing from the union on changes to policies affecting immigration agencies. That essentially would have tied Biden's hands, according to the anonymous whistleblower complaint. In a seemingly coordinated campaign, right-wing commentators have falsely claimed that wind turbines and solar energy are to blame for Texas's rolling blackouts this week. Far-right commenters egged on by a misleading segment on Fox News also blamed the Green New Deal, which does not exist. Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller claimed, quote, We should never build another wind turbine in Texas. This experiment failed big time. U.S. Senator Steve Daines, a Republican from Montana, claimed, quote, This is a perfect example of the need for reliable energy sources like gas and coal. Former Energy Secretary Rick Perry told Texans they should endure several days of hardship to prevent socialism. Texans would be without electricity for far longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. In reality, the failures occurred in natural gas, coal, and nuclear energy delivery systems, and they were responsible for nearly twice as many outages as frozen wind turbines. Texas remains in chaos as rolling blackouts and a boil water order hit as just another oncoming storm has forced millions of people to endure days without power and heat. At least 38 people have died as pipes froze and warming centers lost power in that state. And the former Trump casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey, was blown up on Wednesday in a controlled demolition. Day 30, February 18th. 
New claims for unemployment remain high in America as the labor market here struggles to regain momentum after a winter surge in coronavirus cases. A total of 862,000 workers filed initial claims for unemployment benefits last week. That is roughly the same number as the week prior. 22 million jobs disappeared during the pandemic. Roughly 10 million of those appear to be permanently lost. Jeff Sentz, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, said in a briefing that, quote, we are now on track to have enough vaccine supply for 300 million Americans by the end of July. That would mean that America could be fully vaccinated, assuming everyone opts in, by August. President Biden bluntly declined to support Democratic proposals to cancel up to $50,000 per borrower in student loan debt, saying, quote, I will not make that happen. Biden said, however, he was prepared to cancel $10,000 in debt. Biden said he's now spoken to all living former presidents with one exception. Trump became the first president in modern history to decline to meet with his successor. Biden added, quote, I'm tired of talking about Donald Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore. 59% of Republicans who are registered to vote say cancel culture is a very serious problem. 81% of Republicans say cancel culture is a very serious problem that conservatives are more likely to be negatively affected by. Speaking of canceling, almost every Republican who voted to impeach has been censured by their state's political party. Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois received a letter from 11 of his family members accusing him of joining the Devil's Army and disowning him. 58% of Americans believe Trump should have been convicted. 75% of Republicans say they'd like to see Trump play a prominent role in the Republican Party. 52% of voters approve the job Biden is doing as president. Trump's final approval rating was 29%. These are the Biden Files. Bad at Sports chatted with Mary Case about her new book, Tiny. Case, who works with incarcerated citizens on reading and poetry, discusses her new work and how grief and the dance floor are not as far apart as you might think. Bad at Sports airs Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Take us back to, was that 2015 when you were starting the yeah. first manuscript? Yeah, I was a resident and uh, I thought about Antigone for a long time and I liked it. And I feel like that's a good reason to just start a project. <laughs> you know, you, like, you think about something for a long time and you're like, oh, like, how can I think about this more? Like, how can I hold it in a certain way? And um, I... Uh, yeah, I started it at that table. Um, I remember the, the penguins are very important, you know. <laughs> yeah, a great work of art. Mm-hmm. So, well, so, oh, sorry. No, actually, I'm not sorry. I have to stop oh, apologizing. It's my it's my moment. Um, so you already mentioned Antigone, so I guess there's no spoiler alert that Tiny is in some ways. I I would like hesitate to say retelling, maybe like a cousin the story of antigone is like it there's not that much that happens in it right it's like it's this it's this girl and she has two brothers and like long 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 story short obviously there's a civil war and they both die and um her uncle the king wants to have one of them buried and not the other and she feels that that is wrong and that they're both her brothers and so they should both be respected and so um she makes a choice to respect them both. And then that shifts her whole life around in a really dramatic way. Right. Um, and it's, I was really interested in it cause it's just, it's like literally just a body. There's like not that much that happens in it. And then this like teenage girl being like, no, you're wrong. We need to stay together. This doesn't have to be the end. 
Um, and so I was interested in that just as a weird way to tell a story that also felt like it mattered where not that much happened. Um, and then um, it connected to to um, moments in Chicago with the Iraq War and those protests and being around that space. So that's kind of how it shot into the future for me. And then I just sat with it for a long time. <laughs> it's funny not to like skip ahead to the beginning of the end, but you have this really fascinating citation appendix index section at the end of the book where you reference, you know, a lot of like, obviously the literary references that happen in the book, but a lot of cultural references as well. And I personally didn't know that um, Bertolt Brecht had made a version, a translation of Antigone as well. And it really kind of like, you know, zoomed into focus this idea of Antigone as this like way to tell these stories around really traumatic events that are war, you know, a wartime event. And so it just kind of made me wonder where, like, if you knew about the history of Antigone and like how other authors have played with it and manipulated it, or if kind of you came from like the primary source, like high school reading of Antigone to where high school reading of Antigone, which I feel like is a good way to do it. Right. Cause it's like, it's this like thing that like if you're a certain kind of high school student in a certain kind of place, like I'm a white person. I like went to a certain kind of high school where people read it. Like you're like handed it as this way to address people who have more power than you. And like, it's cool. Cause it's so bare bones. It's like an actual skeleton of like the way to have that conversation. Um, and then I just kind of kept on following it. Um, it was my PhD dissertation and I liked that I got to go to a program where like you could write a dissertation and it would be a thing that different people could read. Um, so like a lot of the notes in the back are like the research that I did, but um, it felt important to include those anyway, because like, why, like why pretend that I wrote Antigone? <laughs> That's like not true and also like not really helpful. So it felt cool to like have a long map in the back. You know? But also there's a real, um, I think, like generosity to that. And, it, and then it becomes something that functions kind of more like paratext than works cited or bibliographies often do. And in part because it's not a scholarly work, um, but also that in all the moments where there are, but it is there's like a, a sort of bibliography of different books to read. It is what? It's scholarly? So, I just can't yeah. believe that Reid was just like, this is my PhD dissertation. And you were like, well, that. Sorry, I meant I meant tiny. I haven't read the dissertation yet. I'm not I'm not as, as deep a, a case that is maybe. No, it is the dissertation. <laughs> I get you, I hear what you're saying though. I mean, because it's like the thing is, is that like the main reason why it's a tragedy isn't because like her brothers die really horribly and it's not because of the civil war. And like in some of the plays, like they really dramatically describe the deaths at the end, but it's because there's not a wedding. Because like a wedding is what makes a comedy, right? So like the fact that she did this thing that disgraced everybody that like, you know, means she can never be let back, let back into the kingdom is the only thing that makes it be a tragedy. Um, long story short, like obviously you could argue with that, but like, I thought it was really interesting to bring a bunch of other stuff in and just say like, you know, what if the big tragic thing isn't the end of your life? And like, that doesn't mean that you forget about it. Right. Or that you like black it out. But like, what if, what if things keep on continuing? Like, cause she's, She's a kid, right? She's like 
she's just a teenager. And so she's so sure of how her life should be. And then the world that she's in, like, presents no other future for it. What this specific uh, uh, press conference turned out to be about was using this as a as a demonstration of this spider-like covert and seamless graft that uh, that when implanted in a body is able to read the chemistry, the the level of auto, uh, of automatic responses, and the nervous system and thermophysical. Uh, 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 like systems that are going on, um, and able to map the structures of feelings and experiences into code. Now, no, um, uh, just to clarify, when you say graft, what does that what does that mean exactly? Well, it's a, it's a small stick like implant that is perfectly perfectly uh, installed into the the body. Um, that it, almost as an extension of said body. Okay. Okay. It sort of tricks the different, uh, the different parts of your body into thinking that it that it is in itself a a meaty organ, a, a part of the nervous or the limbic system that it should be interacting with, and that's how it gets most of its information. Interesting. So Very interesting. What um, spe- uh, one of the biggest things that they released was a uh, was a software called uh, Cort X. Court X is a is an open um, emotion mapping software that, I mean, realistically, one of the big asks for a Prairie City Dynamics here was to encourage people to investigate both their emotions and use Court X to help develop the open source uh, the open source understanding of how emotions can be converted into uh, actual actionable data well this all sounds quite laudable so far right um, it's, it's part of this whole lo- the lo- uh, globalization uh movement i believe i've heard about that yeah. yes um so the promises that were made with this with with this with this huge reveal was that uh these automatic processes uh could in fact uh, understand and uh develop fear uh, like understand and collect uh the information related to fear Specifically, the fight or flight response, fight mm-hmm. or flight enhancements, possibly, um, could help directing and supporting grief and trauma. Um, so this day, this uh, this this software might even be able to allow for deeper connections between people and AI, or perhaps people and people. Uh, um, perhaps even a, a therapist on a chip. Right, a therapist on a chip, or in situations of danger or excitement, um, they could they there there could be manifest certain technology, uh, external technology, which would create something like a force field on the outside, or sort of like a fight or flight. They could you know develop wings, or brass knuckles, whatever you may need, depending on this this automatic emotional response to stimuli. Broadcast every Sunday eight to nine p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal.
For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Thank you.